remember here is that these these creatures were, were these sort of Frankenstein experiments almost, um, and it, that's that's true of the Enuma Elif. It's true of the Genesis uh, the Genesis narrative that's 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 uh, sort of expanded in the apocryphal literature like Enoch and the Genesis apocryphal and some of these other mythologies but um, that's part of the merit of, of looking at the Enuma Elish is because you do find these similarities um, with the biblical narrative particularly the Genesis narrative that, that's really what we're focusing in on in the first few chapters of Genesis Greetings, friends. It's your friendly neighborhood PhD, Dr. Judd H. Burton, director of the Institute of Biblical Anthropology. Tune in to the Prometheus Lens for a deeper dive. All things continually lead back to serpents, dragons, fairies, Nephilim, and fallen angels. In the distance looms a mystical mountain. As Mike Kaiser used to say, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's probably important. At its peak, a great fire burns, concealing the Prometheus lens. This, this development of this knowledge that's being talked about within the mystery schools. An ancient artifact said to reveal the hidden truth within a deliberately darkened world. There is a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. Join us as we travel and explore the vast unknown. It's a hero's journey with dragons to slay, damsels to save, and innumerable treasures to hoard. Torches high. The Smithsonian, they'd call wind of a giant skeleton. They would send their agents out to get it. But it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality. We are all on the hero's journey. Mankind has been in contact with and influenced by extraterrestrials. Leave the Sitchin mound of bull feathers out of it. You know, look at it from a different perspective. A different perspective. Different perspective. Different perspective. What's happening and what's up? Hold out your glass because we're about to fill it up. Welcome to the Prometheus Lens Podcast, the place where the conversations are always enlightening. I'm your host, Justin, independent researcher, podcaster. You may know me from my works with the Dig Bible Podcast. Uh, this is just a, a solo project where I like to look into fascinating subjects and use the basically the allegory of the Prometheus lens to re-examine everything. Have you ever liked looking into old myths and epics and and really break those down and the meanings behind them and compare them, you know, to the biblical narrative and just see the the common themes throughout history? You found yourself in the right episode. Today, we're going to be going over the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myth. And uh, we have an expert guest, 10,000 plus hours and then some, Dr. Judd Burton. Judd, thank you for coming on and talking with us today. Uh, my pleasure. Now, this was uh, something that I had uh, heard about and just, you know, some caveats and little tidbits. But I actually broke down and bought this book maybe a few months ago and I read it and it was just through a biblical lens. It was pretty uh, amazing to see all the connections and correlations with their creation myth and, and ours. 
I like how it started out. Uh, tablet one, it starts off and it says, before the glories above had yet to be named. And immediately I thought of second Esdras uh, chapter six, verse four, because it says before the measures of the firmament were named. You know, because first you had what they called the, the Abzu, which, you know, I took as the abyss and Tiamat were the, the things that were already there in the story. They were not created. They were just already there. Could you uh, care to speak to that? Uh, yeah, the the similarities between the Sumeria, uh, or, or in this case, the Babylonian creation epic and the that in Genesis has been a topic of, of scholarly debate and discussion for, uh, you know, going on two centuries now, really, um, almost two centuries anyway. Um, but the, uh, the imagery, the, the themes that are being used there, uh, the, the, um, elements of, of chaos and formlessness can be seen also in the, the Enuma Elish in the form of Tiamat, who was the chaos dragon in Mesopotamian mythology. And the other word you mentioned there is very pertinent too, the Apsu. Um, here, herein sort of, uh, represented as a, a, a celestial being, primordial being in and of its own right. Later, of course, is the very, not only the name of the deity, but it's the, the name of the, the realm that the dead ancestor kings, or rather the, the ancestor god kings would reside in the Apsu, this watery un underworld. Um, and it really sets the pace for the ancient world, that association between uh, the sea, waters in general, uh, with chaos. But again, the, the similarities in the imagery, very hard to get past. And, and that was something that, that the scholars that first worked on the Enuma Elish, you know, understood. And that, that's, a, you know, you, you mentioned the passage in Esdras there, but, you know, all, all the imagery of, of uh, you know, the first few verses in Genesis, as we'll see as we go through, you know, we could spend the whole show on the first tablet and, mm -hmm. and not even get past the other ones. But, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. The, uh, the similarities that are there, um, they, they bear, bear the question of why the similarities? Um, and by proxy, why do we find so many similarities in creation epics and mythological traditions around the world? Um, insofar as that we're looking at, at, at different tellings of the same event and, and a lot or a series of events in a lot of cases. Uh, it's just that, that, that story wasn't left inert and in situ. It was, manipulated and changed and it, it it was engineered in places by by fallen entities that are are variously called egregory and the watchers the fallen angels that show up for instance in mesopotamian mythology as these elder gods um the apkalu would probably be the best direct uh correlation uh but yeah the the Interesting similarities there go beyond just the scholarly study of these texts, but 
speak um, they they speak to general concerns for humanity I think and one thing too just with the uh, just the verbiage and things like that it says that you know in Genesis where it talks about you know the deep the to home you know, mm-hmm. uh, correlates straight with Tiamat, and then you know the the waters. You know, yes. was was Yom, so that that's the the same story, just different names. Uh, right. But in Isaiah fifty one, in verse nine and ten, talks about the cutting of Rahab, and wounding the dragon. Mm-hmm. And it says the mm-hmm. the waters of the great deep. There is that word again to home. And then in Isaiah twenty seven one, it says, "Shall punish Leviathan." The piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. So we see two, you know, quote unquote, lowercase g gods. And to me, it looked like, you know, they were different names. So it's like comparing it to this Enuma Elish. Is that maybe who they're talking about there? Maybe Abzu and Tiamat, one being male and one being female. Because when it talks about their waters intertwining and making their first offspring, I immediately thought of, you know, that's an allegory for they, they mated and made right. their first offspring. Yeah, it's an interesting proposition to consider. Um, uh, Doug Van Dorn and I did an episode of uh, Blur, the Blurred Creatures podcast where we talked about, you know, this this idea of, of appropriation amongst the gods, you know, in other words, are there uh, amongst the gods of the nations, are, are there also female, you know, entities is, is, is this, you know, the as above, so below, which is an occult saying, but it's actually a perversion of as it is in heaven, as it is on earth that we read in things like the Lord's prayer. Uh, just like everything is everything demonic is a perversion a counterfeit of, of the original um uh you know it, the the question that came up was and that we dealt with for much of that episode uh was you know are there female deities is there a kind of appropriation amongst celestial uh deities and again if that that logic holds true that's a question that's that's worth asking um, but the, um, I, again, the, the topic of Assyriology, which is kind of, kind of what we're plumbing in the depths of here, because that's really kind of where you need, where you need to start. You know, we're dealing with text literature from, from Mesopotamia that have a, not just a cultural context that that's important, but a, a history of the actual scholarship that's done on them is important. And that's probably. We should probably say a few prefatory things in that regard um, to the audience. Um, th- those of of you out there who who listen to you know these kinds of topical discussions on podcasts uh, are, are probably familiar in some way, shape, or form with the Enuma Elish. You know, you've heard uh, you know our, our good friend, the late Dr. Heiser, talk about it. You may have heard me talk about it. You may have heard D- Doug Van Dorn, Derek Gilbert. You know Tom Horn. You know it's 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 fodder for for good comparative discussion because again it speaks to the th- the things that I I mentioned to you a moment ago. Um, 
but the uh, the Enuma Elish is a short, you know, as just pointed out, is a, a very short um, seven tablet uh, accounting of Mesopotamian the Mesopotamian idea of creation, and the tablets themselves have an interesting history all of their own. Um, the first copy was discovered by an archaeologist named Henry Laird uh, in the mid-1800s. And I remember reading about the Enuma Elish and its discovery in my, you know, ground-level archaeology classes, because usually half of the curriculum there is the history of archaeology. And so Laird is one of those guys who really kind of pioneers the field of ancient Near Eastern studies, Assyriology, even ancient Near Eastern archaeology. He, along with with other big names like um, uh, Rawlinson and, and um, uh, E. Wallace Budge and um, Sir Flanders Pedry, you know, all of these guys kind of set the, they basically invented ancient Near Eastern archaeology. Um, but Layard's find was a was groundbreaking, uh, only because it confirmed the existence in 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 its original well, not a, probably not its original form, but in a historical context that established its veracity, because there are other versions basically of the Babylonian creation myth that existed in copies and writing. Um, we find it in Alexander Polyester's uh, writings. Um, we find it in the writings of a, a, a third century BC priest of Baal uh, or Marduk in this case would have been the direct analog, a guy named Brosserus. Um, and it's copied later in uh, Eusebius's. Uh, you know, most a lot of people know who Eusebius is. The basically the father of church history. He wrote the history of the early church, but he also wrote another uh, document known, known as the Chronicon, and it contains uh, a version of of this Babylonian creation myth uh, that these earlier writers had had pinned down. Um, and that's what makes the, you know, because classicists would have been familiar with these, you know, because we're dealing with Greek literature, essentially, uh, people living in the ancient Near East writing in Greek. So classicists would have been familiar with this stuff, but the, the find of, of Laird and his team uh, at Nineveh, what would today be modern uh, Mosul in Iraq, um, is is pretty groundbreaking insofar as that it corroborates the the existence in space and time of these sources. So um, the uh, this particular find was part of the Ashurbanipal Library. Uh, Ashurbanipal II was a, a well-known Assyrian king, and he had this huge cache of of documents that's collectively become known as the uh, the Ashurbanipal Library, and you know, you've got heavy hitters like the Gilgamesh epic and um, everything from that to the most mundane kinds of court records and e trade records and things like that were, that were kept here. But for the longest time, these were curated by German museums. Um, 
and in the wake of, uh, I think it was the first Gulf War, in the wake of that war, um, they were trying, in other words, the Iraqi Antiquities um, Department was trying to get a lot of that stuff back um, with mixed success. Um, but the uh, needless to say, this is one of those watermark finds in the history of archaeology and layered, of course, you know, he's a rock star in, in the history of ancient Near Eastern archaeology. Um, on his team was a guy named George Smith, um, who a, a few decades later would make the, the, um, uh, the earliest of the tr complete translations of, of the Enuma Ilish. Uh, and Smith, of course, himself was a pro prolific um, Assyriologist. In fact, I use a lot of his stuff in my, my ancient Near Eastern program that I teach through the Institute of Biblical Anthropology. Um, so if folks are interested in that, they can, they can certainly check that out and sign up for classes if they want to. But Smith, again, another one of those consummate, you know, Assyriologists. And it's thanks to him that the, I mean, certainly there have been, there's been more work done on the Enuma Elish th since then, but Smith's translations uh, are still public domain. Uh, you could go on the internet and read them right now. Um, so, uh, which I would recommend people because it's a quick read. It won't take you that long to, to read through them. Um, problematic is the fact that we, we do have some gaps in the text. Um, uh, the actual Mesopotamian word used there is lacuna. Um, so there's several of these scattered throughout, as you would expect, because the tablets themselves were not in perfect condition. Um, you know, it's even in, in the best kinds of condition for preservation, you know, we often find fragmentary, you know, copies and fragmentary evidence. And that's the case with the Enuma Elish. But there's enough of it intact that you get a, you get a pretty good sense of what's going on. Uh, with, with the, the epic itself. Um, undoubtedly, there were earlier copies of this because, of course, the Assyrians were were late in the procession of, of civilizations that ruled over Mesopotamia. You know, you had the, the Sumerians beginning in the 4th millennium BC, the Akkadians in their wake. Uh, then you had the, the Amorite Babylonian Empire uh, and then the Assyrians come along about a thousand BC and have a stint as well. And after the Assyrians, the Babylonians or the Neo-Babylonians. So there's a whole procession of civilizations that rule over uh, Mesopotamia. So, you know, undoubtedly, um, and certainly we can derive this from other uh, Akkadian Sumerian finds, this, this existed in, in forms earlier, probably much earlier than this. Um, and the myths themselves must have existed in oral form for millennia uh, before the Sumerians even start writing things down. Um, and there, that would take us sort of into the fields of things like comparative mythology because you need to look at the other mythological traditions in the ancient Near East, um, like the the, the Phoenicians and the Canaanites and the Amorites and even even peoples like the Hittites and the Hurrians in, in Anatolia, ancient Turkey. Uh, but you're going to find a lot of similarities uh, 
in those in those myths. So undoubtedly they exist in a more more centralized oral form in millennia even prior to when cuneiform was developed. Um, so we're talking about uh, yes, the, the, our, our best copy of the Enuma Elish dates to this Assyrian period, but these are ideas that are are being written down much later than they existed in the minds of the people that believed in these things that that you know that actually had experience with the experiences with these entities entities what's happening what's up hold out your glass because we're about to fill it up you know i always said that i would never bow to any corporate sponsor but hey rest assured this ain't corporate kevlar joe's coffee company been a sponsor of my show, The Dig Bible Podcast. They've come on board with the Prometheus Lens. I'm here to tell you guys, if you like good, bold, smooth finished coffee, check these guys out. I'm a personal customer. Been, been that way for a, quite some time now. Uh, the breakfast blend, real good for the morning. But then you got, for your hardcore guys that like their coffee with a little bit of legs, they have the Flightline Joe. I'm telling you, ladies, don't drink this because it's going to put hair on your chest. <laughs> but no guys if you want to help sponsor the show help keep the lights on go on over to uh, kevlarjoes.com check out their stuff and see uh, what blend you like he's got several to choose from oh yeah I mean I totally agree with that uh, you have oral tradition in, in all cultures and it travels you know for hell who knows you know I mean thousands of years before somebody finally gets the bright idea to to write them down and the, the changes and things that go through all these stories before they're actually written down. You know, it's just one of those things. It's uh, you're never going to know, but you can assume, you know, there's been some changes made and things like that. Well, and we're, I appreciate you. We're, we're learning a lot more now about the, the antiquity of, of civilization in Mesopotamia. Um, that you know we we typically think of the sumerians as the earliest um but there were cultures who were basically living in city-states before the sumerians uh all the way from from eastern turkey uh down to the the mid-ranges of the uh, of the tigris and the euphrates rivers um one of those cultures was the ubayid which was a neolithic culture in fact um cities sumerian cities like Uruk and napur um these were actually built first by the ubayid uh, before the sumerians the sumerians just they, in fact it there, there's a, a debate now as to whether the the sumerians learned how to build things like ziggurats from the ubayid um and even before the Ubayid, you had the Halath culture um, in what would have been eastern Turkey, northern Mesopotamia, northern Iraq, um, you know, on a par with those uh, settlements that the uh, Ubayid made. And so the not just the an antique nature, but the very primordial nature, uh, the, the prehistoric nature of, of these beliefs um is is sort of gradually coming to light not just in terms of of 
the archaeology that's being done there, but the linguistic analysis of, of things that are coming out of that region as well. Um, there, there was a brand new, uh, un, previously unknown language in uh, ancient Anatolia that was recently discovered uh, in Turkey. Uh, so, you know, to my mind, um, Turkey and Eastern Turkey in particular are going to be revealing quite a bit about the um, ju just the foundational primeval prehistoric nature of these beliefs that, that were written down in things like the Enuma Elish. I mean, that's just amazing. And, that, and that's why I wanted to talk with you because your mind is just, you know, I mean, it's been years of dedication and study to get there. And I just really appreciate that. I, I got a tendency just to jump into stuff. So I love that you backed up and prefaced all that and gave the history and the background for all that stuff. Cause I mean, that's important. And I usually, like I said, I like to get ahead of myself. Sometimes Steve and Ben has to grab me by the, by my coat there and pull me back sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, definitely. And then of course with me, a layman, I always used to tell people, well, yeah, you see all these similarities and these stories throughout the world and different cultures and different languages, because, you know, my theory was Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. You know, we were once, you know, all together, one tongue, one nation telling the, the same stories. And then when the, the languages and the nations were divided, the people spread out and told the same same stories in their language and then over time like telephone game in school mm -hmm. it gets caveats and twists and then you got the whole you know spiritual you know warfare side of it like you mentioned earlier fallen angels coming in and putting their twist on it and corrupting it and everything but it's like looking into it there was just i mean i knew there were several but there's like everywhere i mean it's even in india mm -hmm. You know, you have Thor battling this uh, this serpent that bites its own tail in Midgard and uh, uh -huh. myth, uh, North, yeah, in Norse mythology. And when Ragnarok, the end of the world, comes, this serpent rises up out of the sea mm -hmm. and does battle w with Thor. Mm -hmm. And uh, then over in India, you have uh, Krishna. Mm -hmm. So you have all this, you know. Uh, as Derek, uh, I've heard him call it uh, chaos comp, mm -hmm. you know, imagery. But yeah, I like how, you know, you just broke all that down with the histories and things like that. And especially with the discoveries and the, and I know you've been working with uh, you and Aaron Judkins wrote his book, you know, The Guardians of Gobekli. And that was an interesting read too, about how everything we know about history is just, Ask backwards. Well, yeah, and you know, you, that thing is so old. And it, not to get too far off topic, but it, it it still is pertinent because we're talking about Mesopotamia. You mentioned the Tower of Babel a moment ago. Um, you know, I, I'm more and more convinced that that people have been looking for for Babel in the wrong place in the wrong time. Um, you know, his, historically, just in terms of, of like biblical scholarship and biblical studies. People have wanted to to line it up with these these ancient Mesopotamian civilizations like Samaria or Acadia or, or Babylon in particular, um, but 
it just seems to me that if you look at something like the Proto-Indo-European language shift, uh, which happened about 6,000 BC, you know, people in that part of the world, you know, from the Proto-Semitic region of, of Turkey and parts of northern Mesopotamia, all the way into um, what would today be the Transcaucasus between the Black Sea and the um, the Caspian Sea, for all intents and purposes, spoke mutually intelligible dialects of the same language. Um, you know, th this reverse engineered language that that linguists call Proto-Indo-European is the mother tongue of most of the languages in Europe and Asia. Uh, and so the breakup of, of that language occurs, you know, at least a couple of millennia before Sumeria is even established, um, pro probably longer. That's 6,000 watermark date, 6,000 BC is just, it's just a generalization of, of when all of those languages broke up. You know, we're talking about millennia before that, that this Proto-Indo-European was spoken, you know, all throughout that region. And so for all intents and purposes, just as Genesis lays out, we spoke one language. Uh, and that confusion of the language, I'm more and more convinced, you know, I'm, ha I'm having to go back and and, and look at some of my linguistics and sociolinguistics textbooks from graduate school. Uh, but I'm more and more convinced that, that this Proto-Indo-European language shift is the Babel event that's, that's recounted in the Bible. And we're looking, we should be looking in Eastern Turkey for a physical location, um, not in, not in, uh, middle and Southern Iraq. Uh, we're looking in the wrong place in the wrong time. Hmm. That, that's a definitely a wild concept because it's just a, a paradigm shift from what, what we're all, you know, raised up and taught and have learned. Certainly, certainly predates you know the civilizations that scholars have usually lined up the Babel event with. Um, you know, and and now of course. Again, in Turkey, we're fine with sites like Gobekli Tepe and Karaan Tepe and Novali Chori, uh, and even some later ones like Chateau Hayuk, which we've known about for, for decades. You know, we're finding out that, that city states existed in the, the, the Meso late Mesolithic and the Neolithic period much earlier, thousands of years earlier than, than cities like Uruk and Nippur. So, you know, we're, we we don't know what we don't know yet, but we're learning. Yeah. This is a, a revelatory time for a number of regions, reasons, and I would encourage people to pay close attention to what's going on in Turkey in terms of, of archaeology and linguistics and, and new discoveries. Yeah, that's just, that's wild. Uh, but uh, getting back with the, this new Malish, the uh, where it talks about the when their waters intermingled, mm -hmm. they uh, they fathered Anshar and Kishar, and it said that after many years was their firstborn Anu, and he was greater than the rest. But then it says he fathered Nudidimud. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Correct, Nudidimud, 
and he was even greater than the rest, and he was described with strength in his limbs and profoundly wise. So speak to uh, those two entities there. Uh, well, I mean, you know, I mean, basically, Anu was like the father. I mean, it's, know, it's, uh, it's analogous to what you find in, 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 you know, the other mythological pantheons. You know, you're looking at this procession of the genealogy of, of the gods. You know, um, most people are at least somewhat familiar with, with the procession of, of sovereignty from the Titans in Greek mythology down to their, their offspring, the Olympians, and then you had lesser gods and demigods. It's the same kind of thing that you see. Take You've got the most primordial gods uh, at, at the top. So in, in, in the case of the Enuma Elish, it's um, Tiamat and, and Opsi. So the analog for that in Greek would be um, uh, the uh, just the sort of primordial void. I, I almost said soup. I don't want to make, <laughs> make it sound like an, an evolutionary discussion. Um, but you can kind of see what I'm talking about because later you have Uranus and Gaia, the heaven and the earth, which we're getting into with Anu and Ki. Um, and then their progeny are set out and they'll rebel against them. And this is repeated over, over and over, even in even in our, tra our tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, following from the Hebrew, the same kind of procession takes place. You've got, you've got the most primordial elements, you know, in the first few verses in Genesis, um, the Nakash uh, in the garden, and then you have another, another fall, another group of celestial beings that have sided with this coup, uh, and their, their progeny. Uh, become another tier of that so it's the same kind of procession that you find um you know in, in most of of the pantheons and mythologies in the world um you can almost find direct analogs for for each one of those uh, and so that you know going back to how we began the discussion tonight um you know there's there's an original story but it's corrupted you know, by these fallen entities, um, almost, almost in a kind of cultural engineering fashion, uh, where you get you get variations on a theme, um, which is interesting because that we're, we're actually seeing the same kind of thing play out with the way that our language is is changing uh, in in the modern world, particularly in the West, with the way that it's basically been weaponized. And it's being used against us, but not to get too far off topic, but you can see that we're, talk we're, we're talking about the establishment of a genealogy of the Mesopotamian deities. And uh, you see that that rebellion through here, mm -hmm. but I'll, I think it's wild how they make it out to basically uh, the gods, the new, the you know, the babies were the rowdy bunch. Mm -hmm. They were just too wild and too rowdy. And, uh, Absu couldn't get any sleep. He was the angry dad mm -hmm. and then goes to, to Tiamat, which was the mother. And, you know, was like, you know, we got to kill them. I can't get no rest. Mm -hmm. It's time to take them behind the woodshed, you know? 
and she gets angry and upset and uh, the children basically rebel, just like you said, the Mount Olympus turning on their uh, fathers, the, the uh, Titans and overthrowing them. So you see that same, same imagery here. But when you get to uh, down the genealogies here and once they uh, kill the father and set up shop again, you see the, the whole thing starting to repeat again. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ea, or how, how you say that yeah. name? It's, I know it's spelled E-A. Yeah, yeah. Is that right, Ea? But uh, Bor Marduk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm no scholar. And I know you can't judge by English but with these, you know, ancient names and, and the languages and stuff. But I immediately, immediately just thought of, uh, in Genesis, when you go through the genealogies and stuff, uh, Nimrod had a son that died in battle. And I always, you know, was like, is there a, a correlation with the original languages or is this just a, a coincidence here uh, like a veneration of his right. son almost well yeah exactly i mean that's kind of kind of the analogy analogy idea that we're, we're dancing around here today um and that's really the merit and value of something like a comparative myth mythology um is that it, it it there's something called structural analysis in uh, anthropology and linguistics where you take these binary opposites uh, you pick out binary opposites and structure in, in mythology and uh, you can certainly do that here uh, in looking at the uh, you know a, a character like Gilgamesh and Marduk although a, a lot of scholars will equate Gilgamesh with uh, Nimrod or I, I think Nimrod and, and Marduk was the was the analogy you were making but marduk is is interesting for a number of reasons because he 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 becomes such a dominant element in mesopotamian mythology at this point he's he's really he's really like the zeus yes i was about to say zeus yeah you know the zeus or jupiter or baal uh he, he's really that kind of figure at the the top of the the conquering pantheon um Marduk, of course, is given the task and, and, you know, without letting too much of the cat out of the bag, because I do want people to read this. Folks, it's a quick read, really, uh, and it's worth your time, too. Uh, and I, I found several audio adaptations uh, of the Enumelish. If you're busy and you want to listen to it, that's a good way to, to get familiar with it, too. But um, Marduk is basically given the task of, of of killing off a lot of these primordial monsters uh, that were created during the course of, of the narrative of uh, the Enema Elish. Um, and I always like to use Marduk uh, in a discussion of another popular topic, and that is Nibiru, which is also referenced in uh, the Enema Elish uh, in, in conjunction with Marduk. Um, a lot of people are probably familiar with that word Nibiru in the context of something like Planet X or Zechariah Sitchin. Um, for those that aren't, the, the long, long and short of it is, is that there was a, a, a writer 
kind of the forerunner of the ancient aliens crowd um, with along with Eric von Donneken, but there was a writer named Zachariah Sitchin who claimed to have um, have accurate, most accurately translated a lot of these ancient Sumerian uh, documents like the Enuma Elish and the Gilgamesh epic. Um, but a lot of his translations were so far off that it was clear that he really didn't have any grounding training in cuneiform or seriology. Uh, in fact, uh, even Dr. Michael Heiser tried to challenge him to debates and stuff, and he he, he wouldn't. wouldn't do it. I, in fact, he's like, dude's just making this stuff up. I, I remember, <laughs> I remember the coast to coast AM episode. I was in graduate school, and I was listening to it, and Mike was on there, and and he told uh, George Norway, Art Bell. I think Art Bell was on his way out. George was coming in, uh, but he told Art. He said, uh, you know, Sitchin's translations are off. You know, Nibiru is not Planet X. You know, he's got the whole Anunnaki coloring off. But any, anyway, uh, you know, he never did debate Mike, um, probably because he knew that he would lose. And, you know, he had already fleeced people out of millions of dollars writing this, you know, this mound of bull feathers that amounted to something like 10 or 12 books on the subject. Uh, but the... Um, you know, the, the, the thesis in these book is, books is that Nibiru was this rogue planet that made the circuitous route into our solar system every, I don't know, 3,600 years, something like that, um, and would uh, exert some sort of control over the Earth at, the, at that time. Um, nothing could be, in terms of translation, nothing could be more wrong. Um, because uh, Nibiru or Nebiru or, or Nibiru or, you know, any of the transliterations that you usually find the forms you find it in, uh, more often than not are associated with Marduk's star in, in Mesopotamian uh, astrology and cosmology. Now, Marduk's star was the planet Jupiter. In fact, I think even in the Smith translation, uh, which was the first, the first one out of the bat, it, it's translated as Jupiter. Um, and people can look this up. You know, it's not hard. You, you could go online to the Oxford University side and they have a, a, a glossary where you can look this stuff up. You know, uh, there are a handful of others that you can go to as well. So it's not like it's, it's hidden knowledge. Uh, but I always get a, a kick out of these, you know, ancient aliens guys and, and YouTubers and stuff like that that are, they refer to the quote-unquote Sumerian documents, you know, and and the work that that Sitchin had done, um, and it's 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 clear to anybody any any freshman that's had cuneiform, you know, that he's not he's not he's he's purposefully changing the meaning of these words to suit his narrative, um, and it you know it's it's the Mesopotamians themselves that clarify it. Because they they wrote their own grammars and lexicons to help us understand, you know, or, or to train you know people in in writing and, and scholarship. Because only a small portion of people wrote uh, in the ancient world, but those those glossaries and and grammars are still around. You know, they've been translated, and so 
we know exactly what they meant. So if people are, are interested in Nibiru and want clarification on that, again, the, the Enuma Elish is a great place to start because it lays it out there. Um, that's not to say that there may not be a rogue planet, you know, somewhere. It's just not the one that Sitchin is talking about. You know, it, that's a completely fabricated narrative that you find in his books. Well, see, uh, still like in the first tablet where this rebellion is we're, started we're gonna to take have, place. We're going to have to do a whole series on this if we're not, we're just in the first tablet. <laughs> yeah, man, we definitely did. I'm down for it. But uh, when it, she uh, when she finds out, when I say she, I'm talking about Tiamat, you know, that the rebellion was about to happen, she starts just creating all these monstrosities, mm. all these monsters. And I mentioned to you before the show there was some uh words in here that i was just totally lost on and ling linguistically i knew you'd be the man to talk to because some of these uh monsters sound very interesting to say the least mm -hmm. but it says that she brought forth mighty serpents mm -hmm. with uh poison for blood poison for blood and then she yeah and then she enlisted a horned snake and it says a Mushushu dragon, a Lamu hero, and a Ugalu devil, mm. a scorpion man, and a Umu devil. Mm -hmm. uh, enlighten oh, yeah, us God. and some of the listeners it's on what these things are. List of baddies. Uh, if... Um... If I'm not mistaken, I think the Lilu is, is amongst some of those. Um, that may be in a later tablet. I'm trying to remember. Um, at any rate, uh, you know, these are the monsters that, that bedeck uh, a lot of the iconic, you know, um, archaeological finds in, in the ancient Near East. Not just in Mesopotamia either, because, you know, there are mentions of, of these in other traditions. I mean, even in the Bible. Um, there are references to things like scorpion men and lion men and uh, the, these. Well, the Book of Revelation, exactly. you know, them weird things that come out of the abyss. That's exactly right, and they hearken to the kind of manipulation that the the Watchers took part in, uh, as articulated in Enoch. The uh, you know because there weren't just hominid Nephilim, there were there was the corruption of animal, you know, DNA of all, of all kinds apparently which resulted in a, a number of kinds of, of hybrid creatures. And so a lot of these are, are, are those kinds of hybrid creatures like bull, bull men and uh, the scorpion men that you, you referenced. Yeah, there's a whole host of, of, of interesting creatures that are, are made here, which are interestingly analogous to the hybrid chimerical kinds of creatures that you find in the other mythologies, not just in the, in the ancient Near East. Uh, but even in the, the, the peoples that drew off of that mythology, most directly the Greeks, because it's been established that a lot of orientalization took place, influence of these ancient Near Eastern mythologies on Greece. Um, and there are similar kinds of chimerical creatures, um, like the, uh, uh, you know, the centaurs and the, the satyrs, you know, they're, they're like the, the uh, Adzaga uh, um, 
who I think is also mentioned in one of the creation tablets, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Zaga was a goat deity that was half man and half human, essentially. Um, so the the thing to remember here is that these these creatures were were these sort of Frankenstein experiments almost, um, and it, that's that's true of the Enuma Elish. It's true of the Genesis, uh, uh, the Genesis narrative that's 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 uh, sort of expanded in the apocryphal literature, like Enoch and the Genesis apocryphal, and, uh, and some of these other mythologies. But um, that's part of the merit of, of looking at the Enuma Elish is because you do find these similarities um, with the biblical narrative, partic particularly the Genesis narrative. That, that's really what we're focusing in on in the first few chapters of Genesis. Well, uh, this was something that really stood out to me uh, as she prepares her battle and she, you know, has all these monsters. She uh, basically marries this, this other, you know, God named Kingu. Mm -hmm. makes her, you know, makes him her soulmate is what the book says mm -hmm. and her mm -hmm. chief of her military. But mm -hmm. then it says that she bestows upon him the tablets of fate and he clasps them mm -hmm. to his chest. You know, like I said, I'm just a layman and the only lens I really got is, you know, like the biblical one. I was like, is this basically like a a priestly ephod, you know, the garments of from the Garden of God, or you know, what's your take on the the tablets of destiny or fate? Uh, well, I'm sorry. It, it certainly could be that the, the tablets of fate um, and are interesting insofar as that um, you know you you read later in the in Umilish about the Anunnaki, uh, which were another you know, corruption of uh, most people that have heard about the Anunnaki know about them from Zechariah Sitchin. Uh, God help us. Uh, but the, uh, the Anunnaki were associated with the, the carrying out of, of, of fate. Um, and so they're, they're, well, a lot of those, those entities could be seen as analogous to some of the giant tribes, some of the, the lower tier uh, gods. Um, Marduk, in fact, is is one of them. He's one of the Anunnaki. Um, but in, in terms of a like an actual artifact uh, being handed, um, that's that's an interesting proposition. Um, you know. The uh, the apocryphal literature like uh, Jasher and Jubilees and is is rife with this kind of stuff, um, uh, such as the the garments that Adam Adam and Eve had after they were cast out of the garden. You know, according to apocryphal tradition, these were heirlooms. They were they were symbols of patriarchy that were handed down uh, the line all the way into the historical period. Um, and that in fact, Nimrod at one point in time had, uh, had basically stolen. Um, and so here's an example of, you know, a, an artifact of, of divine origin 
that may provide some analogy. Another one is the discovery of the writings of the Watchers, which I find inordinately fascinating uh, by uh, our fact set. Uh, and I think that's in Jubilees where that account is given where he finds um, the writings of the Watchers and basically uses their knowledge, you know, to kind of restart that demonic, you know, agenda in the, the early post-flood world. Again, we're all taught, you know, all this prospectively is happening in Eastern Turkey, you know, Northern Mesopotamia. So that, again, people really need to focus on discoveries that are coming out of, out of that part of Turkey. Um, so there, yeah, there may be something there. Uh, it's just hard. It, it's hard to quantify because we don't have any smoking gun. We don't have any, any evidence that would, that would show us that these so-called, you know, tablets of fate, um, were, were a distinct artifact, but the precedent is there in the literature of the, of that region. So it, you know, who knows? And you see the correlations, you know, with the Apocrypha and, and other, you know, religions about these, you know, powerful items that are handed down and that the gods fight over. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because even when Marduk defeats King U, it, it, it specifically tells you and that he takes the tablets of fate because King U was not deserving. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was obviously important enough to after he slayed him to take him mm -hmm. just like when Esau slayed, slayed Nimrod, Nimrod exactly he made he he took the the garments mm -hmm. before he fled away that's right that's just which know, is interesting in really cool that's interesting in and of itself too yeah and just to see you know once again the correlations mm -hmm. of these different cultures different times and just the, the similarities and it's just, to me, it's amazing. And like you said, we have no smoking gun. Uh, basically all we have is interpretation and speculation of all these different similar and sometimes even exact right. stories just with different names. Well, the, the thing about, uh, you know, even the, even the sort of conjecture, you know, the scholarly conjecture is valuable because we can do that. Um, because we do have these textual resources to go off of and we can find the connective tissue between them and we can see the, the analogous narratives that are taking place. Um, so, you know, if, if those things can be developed into hypotheses and later theories, then there's some merit in, in doing that. Um, so, um, the problem is, is when people don't take the time to, you know, at least familiarize themselves with the Enuma Elish or whatever, you know, collection of documents that they're doing, and then just pr proceed based solely on interest and not any kind of authority, you know, and that has a lot less to do with degrees behind your name and just putting in the hours, you know, to familiarize yourself, you know, and it depends on how deep you want to go. I mean, there are people that, that are abundantly familiar with Mesopotamian mythology and, and, and literature, they and may not be able to read cuneiform. You at least are building a, a, a familiarity, you know, with the literature and, a, and an authoritative, you know, stance to make your statements from. Um, and some people are, are diehard about it. They want to go in, they want to learn cuneiform. They want to learn how to read this stuff in your, and there's 
certainly merit and value to that because you pick up on nuance and idiom. Um, but the, you know, that's why people need to be discerning. And I'm speaking to people in general, but, but specifically for Christians that are interested in this, you know, there, there are tons of people on YouTube and in the cybersphere and, and, and they, they may give you a really glossy, eye-catching, you know, video or, or interview or something like that. But a lot of it is bunk because they haven't put in the time to actually develop the authority. You know, they haven't, they've not familiarized themselves with the, the literature and the, the scholarship. And, um, and so you end up, that's why you end up with, with your Zachariah Sitchins and your Eric Von Donikins. And, you know, they just did, they don't spend the time necessary to develop the proper authority. And that, that just leads people into bad conclusions about, about these documents, but there's, there's value and merit here in looking at things like the Enumulish and what similarities are, are with Genesis, but it takes a studious mindset uh, in order, as, as you know, you know, from reading this stuff yourself, um, you know, it, it takes a scrutinizing eye um, and, and, and the patience to actually familiarize yourself with this stuff and, and make grounded, you know, not, not only conclusions, but like, we're, you know, we've even done some conjecture tonight, you know, I, I, I really like what, what Mike Heiser used to say on French pop three, two, one that Aaron and I are about to, to launch into hosting. You know, Mike used to always say that, that the world we live in is strange, but your thinking doesn't have to be. Uh, and the same can be said, you know, of, of studying the Enumilish comparatively with the Bible. Um, and so my, my advice for people is to leave the, leave the Sitchin out of it and, and look at, at the work of, of scholars, you know, that have gone before us, like Dr. Heiser, who did so much great analogous work, you know, between the Mesopotamian stuff and the biblical stuff. And like you were saying too, it it takes a a lot of times a simple Google search mm -hmm. to find some resources and and check these things. That's what I tell people. Well, you yeah, know, often is you know look into these things yourself. Don't just repeat what people say and even stuff I say. You know, sure. I mean, I, I I ain't God. I don't. I got more questions than I got answers, but I got postulations. So if I tell you my idea or my thought on something, don't just take it for gold. Sure. Go look it up and see see what you find. Right. Well, and people can, you know, there's there so many resources out there now, you know, just as with biblical studies. You don't you don't have to be a, a, a linguist. You know, we've got all these resources now that can shed light on a lot of that stuff and resources like even academia.edu that anybody can get, you know, a subscription to you get a lot of these scholars have already done the, the groundwork, you know, they've done the heavy lifting for you, you know, go and see, you don't have to agree with them, go to them and see, see how their, their scholarship lines up with the biblical narrative. You know, if they're doing something on Gilgamesh or the Enuma Elish or, or anything in the ancient Near East. Um, you know, I was looking at my academia feed earlier today 
And there were several papers, you know, that came up on it that had direct bearing on on Mesopotamian literature in the Bible. So, you know, this stuff is waiting. It, it's just out there. You know, we've never been at a time where we've had so much access to this information and and so many people not not really wanting to make use of it. Uh, and that's that's the great tragedy. But um, anyway, the the Enuma Elish, you know, go go there in a night. Find a copy, read it. You know, it'll it'll probably take you twenty minutes to read it. Yeah, yeah, it ain't bad at all. Uh, but I can't. I don't have my copy with mm -hmm. me. But it was a little bit thicker because it had uh, footnotes yeah. and study yeah. notes, and yeah. it was really great because, like, when it would have a certain phrase on some stuff, it would have like a a plus sign or a hashtag and little symbols. And then when you got down to the bottom of the footnotes, you found those symbols mm -hmm. and it give you like some talking points and, and notes on things. Like I love, you know, looking into, you know, like a, what's a, the word for it? Uh, not astrology, astronomy, mm -hmm. you know, like in ancient texts and even in the Bible, it, it's all through the Bible. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's a perversion, you know, on mm -hmm. earth as it is in heaven, mm -hmm. they turned into as it's above, so, so below. Mm -hmm. But Tablet 5, man, oh, man, I'm so, so happy that whoever translated that and wrote that book took the time to put in all those notes and those footnotes mm -hmm. because the layman like me would have never, ever made those connections. Mm -hmm. it, and it's basically because of his work or her work, I made a connection with Deuteronomy 32. Mm -hmm. When I seen that, because it says, you know, after the, after they defeated chaos and then they, you know, basically just like uh, the Norse mythology, busted up the dragon and used its pieces to, to build earth where the Norse destroyed the, uh, the giant the uh, Ymir, Frost, yeah, Ymir and used, yeah, and used his parts mm -hmm. to build the earth. It was the same thing. So but then he basically divvies out uh, portions for all these, you know, gods to rule mm -hmm. and where it says, you know, he, uh, he constructed various stations for everyone of the high gods concerning the stars. And he placed constellations for each one, then established the year and set forth its subdivisions. Mm -hmm. So he was talking about the Zodiacs, right. you know, he assigned three stars to signify each of the 12 months. And then in that notes, he talked about how each constellation had three stars that they called deacons. Mm -hmm. And it said, so he set forth the station of Nibiru to delineate their movement, Jupiter. Mm -hmm. It says, you know, and then he made stations for Enlil and Ea, uh, the two hemispheres, the uh, north for Enlil, the south for Ea, and the equator ones for Anu, and made made the recent moon to rule the night as the indicator of days never failing each month in its circle of light. In the first of the month, your horns was an indicator for six days. And on the seventh, your crown is a half darkness. The waxing moon now is half moon. And it says the 15th day will be halfway at every month midpoint called Shabbatu, which was the same root origins for Sabbath mm -hmm. is what it said in the notes. It mm -hmm. says in a time when Shamash, you know, the sun God mm -hmm. faces you opposite horizon 
Smash ultimately determines the year's length. So basically, it was telling you a, a 12 month a year of 30 days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I hope whoever reads that finds, you know, that version because a lot of that stuff that I added in there was obviously not in the ancient text, you mm-hmm. know, talking about zodiacs and all these things. But, right. Well, even the mention of the bow star, mm-hmm. you know, he said it was, you know, serious. Serious. There's so much, so much there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we're finding out now that, that some of these astrological divisions, maybe on some of these older monuments in Turkey um, that we're finding now, I'm thinking specifically of some of the stele, uh, the pillars at, at Gobekli Tepe, um, Tomel's Hill, uh, the archaeoastronomy is still being worked out. Uh, but um, what you're looking at in the Enumelushir the, in the fifth tablet is the division of not only sacred time and space, but mundane time and space. That's the, the gods of the nations connection there. Uh, but there's a lot of, you know, people will recognize the kind of imagery that you find in, in Genesis, you know, in the division of the night and day and, uh, you know, the light and the dark, all those kinds of things, you know, are showing up, you know, in the Enuma Elish as well. Again, folks have to remember we're looking at, at different versions of observations of the same event. Um, so that's why you're going to find a lot of those similarities in there. But yeah, that that's the, the, the deity correlation here definitely has to do with the division of, of the earth um, into the domains that would be ruled over by the gods of the nations as described in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Um, and we know how that turns out. And from the biblical perspective, none of them seem to have done the jobs that they were appointed to do. Uh, they failed rather, rather miserably. Um, and, uh, so in people need to remember that too, as they're, they're reading the Enuma Elish to get the, the, not just the Genesis contention, but, but the ultimate, you know, the ultimate downfall and failure and demise of the gods of the nations. And, and one interesting thing that I found was uh, when it described uh, Tiamat and her parts, mm-hmm. it said he took the various parts of Tiamat to create the earth and he took her thigh to hold up the vault of heaven. Half of her body made the earth and the other half, the sky but it says, then her insides, he twirled so that the insides of Tiamat spun. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, am I looking too deep into this or is it like, do these people already know that we were on a, a globe spinning around? Well, I mean, you've got, you basically got all three dimensions, spatial dimensions represented here, don't you? Yeah, breadth and width. So, yeah, it it would seem that you know that that would that would be the case here, and certainly there's precedent for ancient peoples knowing that that the world you know was a spheroid, uh, a globe, if you will, because of the way that they could they could watch 
vessels disappearing over the horizon. They disappeared full first, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't want to turn this into a, a debunking of flat earth or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, that's no, we got a, we got a debate with Greg Locke and that other guy coming up pretty soon. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> Have you right. heard about that? That's right. Yeah. But this, this speaks to the, the sense of, of not just local geography, but planetary geography that the ancients were familiar with. Um, just in their case, largely just by observing the movements of those celestial bodies that were most proximate to the earth. Um, so, you know, yeah, you, you do have chambered earths and, and, and different shapes of, of the earth that are, are encapsulated in some, in a lot of these ancient mythologies. Um, but usually the nuances of the words that are used to describe the shape of the earth are, are either misunderstood or taken out of context or misused by people who are arguing against a, a, a spheroidal, spheroid earth. Um, but clearly ancient peoples, prehistoric peoples even, could tell uh, the shape of the earth just because, you know, by virtue of, of you know, the shadows that were cast on the earth and the, and the shadows that the earth cast on bodies like the moon. So, um, the, uh, what makes, what makes it this interesting is that, is that it's grounded within the text of something like the Enuma Elish, uh, and arguably the Bible, although neither one of these books is a, is a science book per se. Uh, they're both co they're cosmologies. They're setting the stage for everything that happens in the realm of the supernatural. That happens in the realm of the gods. It help happens into again, if I can borrow a word from Doctor Heiser, the unseen realm. You know that this is is the procession of events and the groundwork, the context, uh, the culture that they existed in, because that's also something that we don't often think of is that this realm had its own culture, had its own cultures. It had, it, it, you know, our, our, our earthly cultures are derivative of the original culture, which was a supernatural one. It was the one of the unseen realm. Uh, and so, you know, these are things that people need to be thinking about too, when they read something like the Animalish. And uh, I just wanted to ask just for clarification, because I've read that book by, by Dr. Aaron Judkins, but mm -hmm. uh, it's been a little while and several books, you know, behind. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting older. My memory ain't as good. But I remember him talking about how he thought, you know, there was astronomical correlations with that. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correct, well, he was saying that there was lots of bull or bullvine imagery. Oh, yes. Yeah. The, the, and basically how the the deacons and the constellations set up mm -hmm. and that and and I, I can't explain that well but basically when they line up a certain way you know that's the age of the the bull or or something like that yes the the aurochs was a prevalent depiction um, uh the aurochs was a, a pleistocene era 
you know, bovine. It was lar larger than the cows that we had, bovines that we have today. Probably somewhere. Like behemoth. Yeah, somewhere on the order of uh, probably a little bit smaller than bison antiquus. Bison antiquus is probably about, oh, probably about seven feet, six or seven feet at the shoulder. So we're we're look, looking at an immense animal. Um, yeah. Anyway, you, you dice it. But the aurochs, you know, dies out in the early antique period, basically. But it, the bull becomes this, it becomes associated with the the kings of these pantheons. And so Marduk, Zeus, Baal, uh, you know, they're all, all tied to the imagery of the bull. And we're, again, we're finding that in these prehistoric, you know, sites. So clearly people were, clearly people had in, 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 prehistory had a a a more in-depth a, a more comprehensive knowledge of the movement of the stars than we ever thought about giving them credit for yeah i mean that's just plain as day when you when you look through the the not only the text archaeology mm -hmm. and, and and the stories and and it's there in our bible too sure. it's just been kind of whitewashed and de-supernaturalized mm -hmm. to get the weird like I, in my opinion to get the weird out <laughs> for some mm -hmm. reason but it's like you know the book of job you have so much talk uh, of stars and the creation of stars the uh mentioning of the the wandering stars in, in jude mm -hmm. and can you bind pallades you know and uh grab the leviathan you know by, by its nose and just it's all there. It's just, just, I don't know, either just whitewashed or misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. Well, I won't keep you, man. I, I'll, uh, I can ramble on with you for another two hours, but I know you got things to do, well, uh, but I appreciate you. Let's do some follow-up. I mean, I think we're just, we're just starting to peel this onion back. Yes, sir. I want to, uh, yeah, definitely. We'll do a part two. I think we've laid the groundwork pretty much for the first tablet. We should start going into the rest. We sort of piecemeal picked from other, other tablets, but we could start with tablet two. Cool. Let's just go through each one and just tear them yeah, apart. Absolutely. And I tell you what, if, pe Sweet. if, if people are interested, um, there are probably a number of programs that I have at the Institute that would be of, of use to them. Um, the ancient Near Eastern program covers the history and religions of the ancient Near East. So people would be looking at Mesopotamia and Anatolia and Egypt and the Levant. Um, and I'll also have uh, biblical demonology and, and mythology, which would probably be of use as well, uh, since I reference a lot of material from the ancient Near East in both of those, those classes. So if people are interested, they can go to burtonbeyond.net. Uh, and the institute is part of that website yeah awesome and i was actually curious about that since i got you on the line sure. um how does that work is that like uh you know you, you pay for a certain class and then you get access to like pre-recorded stuff well, and some literature the, the way or... that it is now I'll, I'll go ahead and kind of synopsize it um i have six programs and there's 12 courses a piece in each one so they're all topically uh, 
delineated. So a, a few I've mentioned already, biblical demonology, um, world mythology, ancient Near Eastern civilization, also have a Mediterranean civilization, which covers all of the, the Mycenaeans and the Minoans and the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, and, all, and I have the flagship program, which is biblical anthropology. And all of these study the culture, history, and religion through the, the biblical lens, the divine council lens. Um, and the, the program classroom platform is in Google Class. And once people purchase the, they, they can do, they can buy the whole thing or they can pay by month. So you become a student member that way. And you, you then get access to whatever program classes you have. Um, there's reading material that's generally provided for each one. So I have, I have links, um, to the stuff that, you know, if you want to buy a hard copy, you can, but, but people aren't required to. And so you have weekly readings and you you take notes you know as you're going through these books and that those are basically your, your assignments for the classes and at the end of the the program you write a paper a summative paper on a topic related to what you've been studying um, and that gets you the certification uh, the certificate from from the institute um, I'm constantly adding to I've got video content that I need to to put up still yet but it's going to be the the class is class stuff is only going to get richer so i'm always going to be throwing stuff at it that's not necessarily required for the certification but you know if people want to listen to an interview that's pertinent to it or a lecture that's pertinent to it or i may have have some recommended readings you know if you want to go further uh it all depends on what the student wants to get out of it you know i've got a lot of people that don't really want the want the certification they just want the information and so that's fine if you want to do it that way um generally i have students go through each class you know on a on a four-week basis so the material takes about four weeks to complete um and that's that's really the pace that you need to stay at um but otherwise people can do that whenever they get to it so it's 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 all tailored to you know people that have jobs and you know we've all got families and we've got other stuff that we're doing and that this material was so important that i felt that a program needed to be developed to fit around everybody's schedule so you know it's not like we have class meetings you know monday wednesday friday and you have to be there we do have in the facebook page in fact we're starting the first live live stream chat um this weekend. So there'll be monthly, you know, that's another perk that you get with the student membership is, um, you know, there'll be these monthly discussions with me, with, with each of the pro related programs. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Like, um, as far as like pricing, what's the pricing for that? Is there well, the, the like monthly payment yeah, subscription if, or if, if you do, buy it all you can do a you can do a yearly or a monthly if you do the yearly you get a set a pretty substantial savings so e each of the programs at, at that that range are 250 dollars uh if you do the monthly uh it's 27 bucks a month so it's still uh, it's still a really good deal uh it's just when you buy the whole package up front uh, you get a substantial discount. Nice. 
see, I've been wanting to check into that for a, for a while now, and I know we've had you on a few times, and I was like, next time, because I've seen you and uh, Brandon talking about it on Facebook, and I was like, I'm, I want to get the deeds on that. Well, the, the really popular one right now is the Preternatural Morphology one. That's the Monsters one. Cryptids. Yeah, the vampires, the werewolves, the uh, chimera, the zombies. Um, that one's really hot right now. And it's just also the fascination of it and the, the paradigm shift because most people, they're like monsters and cryptids yep. and werewolves in your Bible. Yep. Nah, what would you say earlier? I loved it. Uh, bull feathers? No, bull feathers. Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah i'm stealing that that's funny but uh guys yeah check out dr judd as you can see if you're listening to this podcast you've, you've heard him before and i'm sure you're well familiar with him so go uh support his work and uh expand your mind until next time torches high are you a member of the prometheus lens podcast members only group and if not what are you waiting for Come join the band of brothers on the hero's journey. With this members-only package, you get early access to episodes. You get special episodes that nobody else gets, special video content, documentaries. And you help support the show and keep the lights on. You know, doing podcasts, they can be very expensive. A lot of people don't realize all the subscriptions, the website fees, the, the video and audio subscriptions and things like that. So if you enjoy the content, help keep the lights on, help me keep doing what I love to do and keep bringing you fire each and every week.